How many of you think that you perform better under pressure? Uh, you know, like there's a deadline and you've put something off and now you've got to do it, you've got to get it done. Um, I heard a guy one time, he was saying, you know, a lot of you think that you work better under pressure. You know, you deliver better when there's this thing and you've put it off. He said, you don't actually know that you work better under pressure. It's just all you've ever done. But pressure is this thing in our lives that tends to reveal the true nature and the true character of who we are. And it makes me think of one of the best pressure-performing athletes of all time, uh, Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter's the shortstop for the New York Yankees. A lot of you know I like baseball, and so you're not surprised here. Oh, he's talking about sports again, and here we go. Um, but Derek Jeter is the shortstop for the New York Yankees, and it's amazing that Derek Jeter, in his lifetime as a player, in his career as a player, has played almost a full regular season's worth of games in the postseason. So a regular season is 162 games long. He's played almost 150 games in the playoffs in the World Series. It's incredible. I guess that's what you get when you're part of the Yankees, right, for that long. Uh, but he, he's done that, and he's consistently been a, a pressure performer. Um, between him and Reggie Jackson, you kind of have this debate about who's the greatest Yankee in the postseason ever. But I think you can make an argument that it's Derek Jeter. And here's why. If you look at his career batting average, so the, the batting average he's accumulated over all the different years that he's played, his career batting average is 313. That means just over th- uh, 30% of the time he gets a hit. 313, very good average. I mean, that's an outstanding average. It's part of why he'll be in the Hall of Fame. But in the postseason, where the pitching gets tougher and the defense is tougher and everybody's more intense and everybody's bringing their A game and this is on national TV and the pressure is on in your New York City, in, in the playoffs, his batting average is 309. It was from 313 all the way down to 309, right? I mean, so he's consistent. Everybody else's average plummets, and especially Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez. It's just like, I mean, they just fold under the pressure, but not uh, Derek Jeter. And then when you get to the World Series, when the pressure's on the most, his batting average rises to 321. And that's why, as a 37-year-old who plays very mediocre defense now, he's still this year going to make $15 million dollars. Which I know a lot of you are like, there's no way an athlete should make that much money and nobody's worth that. Whatever, okay, fine. But that's why you pay a guy that much money because he's great under pressure. And who we are under pressure, what comes out of us when the heat is on, really is kind of the true indication of who we really are. And we'd add to that even who we are under pressure in private. Is who we really are. A lot of people respond great to pressure when everybody's looking and the crowd is there and there's people to impress. But who you are in the private moments when the pressure's on, when the temptation's there, that's who you are. That's what we're going to look at today in this passage in Ruth chapter 3. This is a weird passage. We're going to talk about this today. I'm going to give you some background on it. Um, This is just a strange a strange passage. Um, I will tell you, um, it's a bit PG-13. We tried to put that in the email this week, just so you know. Um, There are adult situations. There is a a lot of sexual suggestiveness here. And so if you have kids that you want to maybe not have in here, now's your opportunity to to let them go somewhere else, send them off to the the classroom or whatever you need to do. But I just want to at least give you a fair warning. We're not going to be crass. We're just going to talk about what's in the Bible. But this is a very 
Um, if this was a movie, it'd be PG-13. Now, before we get into the story, we got to review what's happened up to this point. And then I got to give you some background that if you don't have this background, you won't understand what's going on in the story. And so um, the review basically goes like this. The story starts in chapter one. And there's a man named Elimelech, and he's married to Naomi, and they're from Bethlehem, and there's a famine in Bethlehem. And so Elimelech, rather than trusting the Lord at that moment that God would provide, he takes his family to Moab, a godless place far from, far from the Lord, far from people who worship the Lord, the enemies actually of the Jews. He takes them there because there's bread and there's a shortcut to God's provision. So he goes there, and he and his wife Naomi and their two sons, his two sons get married to Moabite women. And over the course of these 10 years, Elimelech dies, and then his two sons die. And Naomi, his wife, and Ruth and Orpah, the two daughters-in-law, are all left widows. And they decide, hey, we should go back. Uh, Naomi kind of leads the way and says, uh, we're going to go back. Orpah says, you know what, I'm going to stay. Naomi, Ruth has this great experience where she says, I'm going to serve the Lord, and your people should be my people, and your God should be my God. And so uh, at the end of chapter 1, Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem. It's the beginning of the Harley, uh, or the the Harley Barvest, the Barley Harvest. (laughs) A lot of names and things going on here. It's only going to get weirder today, all right? Buckle up. And so in chapter 2, uh, Ruth is, has this opportunity to glean in the field. She's getting to pick the extra leftover grain that's been left there. Um, and it just so happens, it says in the text, it just so happens kind of by coincidence, which the Lord tells us here, there's no coincidences. It's all his grace, his providence, his ruling over the world. Um, but by chance, it just so happens that she gleans in the field of this very generous and very godly man, named Boaz. They have a very interesting and, and, and good interaction together. And at the end of the day, she's, she, she went out totally empty with nothing. She comes back hauling about 30 pounds of grain in a doggy bag. And her mother-in-law goes, where were you today? How did this happen? She says, well, I just happened to land with, in this field where this, of this guy owned by uh, Boaz. She goes, Boaz? He's one of our relatives. He's a potential redeemer. And then we sort of wait until chapter 3. And then we're going we're gonna to get into why that matters and what, what's the significance of that. But the author here is setting this stage, um, setting the course for us to understand, okay, something important is about to happen with Ruth and Boaz. So that's what's happened up to this point. Now, here's a couple other just background things that if you don't kind of think through, you're going to have a hard time kind of understanding this passage. The first one has to do with uh, something maybe you've heard of called Sadie Hawkins. Ever heard of a Sadie Hawkins dance, right? That's where the, the girls ask the guys to the dance at uh, the high school I went to. It was called Snowball. Um, and you ended up doing all sorts of stupid stuff because these girls had all these great ideas. <laughs> One of, we, I went to this Roaring Twenties Snowball Sadie Hawkins dance. And it was like, I don't look good in a zoot suit. Thank you very much. But Sadie Hawkins, I don't know if anybody know how it started? It started actually in 1937, in November of 1937. There was some hillbilly comic strip, uh, Little Abner. And uh, Sadie Hawkins was in this strip, and, and she was about 30-something years old and hadn't been married. And, and so they organized in, in, I think, Dogville or wherever this, this place was in the comic, they organized the Sadie Hawkins race. And basically all the eligible bachelors... Were, were there, and they ran, they took off, and then Sadie Hawkins ran after him, and whichever one she was able to catch had to marry her. 
And this became a regular feature in the comic strip and eventually sort of you know, gained popular momentum. And all of a sudden, now we have Sadie Hawkins dances. It's the girl asks the guy. What we have in this story is a really interesting thing. And it's interesting even in our day, because even in our day, it's fine for a woman to ask a guy you know, to a dance. But it's, and it's, it's growing in popularity, but it's still a little weird for a woman to ask a man to marry her. Right? When your female friend comes to you and says, I got engaged, you don't typically say, how did you ask him? <laughs> right? I mean, you want to hear, how did he ask? I mean, that, that's, that's a strange thing in our day. And so if that's strange or different or unique in our day, it's even more unique in this day. And in this chapter, one of the things we find is Ruth is going to propose to Boaz. And so that's weird for us. That is really weird in uh, in biblical times, okay? So we got to just see, that's, that's a really important thing. Here's another thing background-wise that we have to see, is we have to understand the Bible's view of the relationship between sex and marriage. The Bible's view, the Lord's view that he gives all throughout the Bible, is that sex and marriage always go together. The idea that if you're going to become one physically, you should be ready to become one Mentally, emotionally, vocationally, in every, in every way. And what happens, and this is not particularly popular in our day today. Uh, it, I don't think it's ever really been super popular. People have complied with it over time. But what, what, what we have today is an opportunity where people can become one physically and yet abandon all the other responsibilities. And so many people want to go, I want all the benefits of marriage without any of the responsibility. And in the Bible, specifically in Exodus 22, one of the things that it teaches was that if two unmarried people slept together, that they were to marry. That that basically committed them into marriage. That's a biblical perspective. And so that's something that's going to be important as we look at what's going on in this story. Here's the third thing of background that you've got to understand. And this is a huge concept and a huge one for the whole book of Ruth. And this is the concept of a redeemer or what some have called a kinsman redeemer. Now, that's kind of the, one of the major themes of this book, is a kinsman redeemer. And so I've got to help you understand what's going on with this idea of kinsman redeemer. We'll look at it this week and next week. Um, in Israel, the family name and the land are really big deals. So uh, to give you some background, and you've got you to track with this. This is important to understand what's going on here today. Uh, when the people of Israel went into the land and it was divided up, it was divided up by tribe and clan and family, and everybody got their specific allotted amount of land. And that land stayed in their family through, through the various patriarchs of that family, through the men of that family who carried the family name forever. Occasionally what would happen, though, is somebody would become into some kind of financial problem or some sort of reason where, for whatever reason, they would have to sell the land. They'd sell the land to somebody. And at that point, that meant that their name would be cut off from the land. Now, now listen, because this was so important, God instituted a thing called the Jubilee. How many of you ever heard the phrase Jubilee? You usually hear it on late night Christian TV referring to something totally different. But the Jubilee was the idea that every 50 years, God sort of wiped the slate clean and all the property rights went back to the original owners. 
So you had this guarantee. This is a pretty wise system by God, actually, that no one would ever be le- no one's family would ever be left in permanent abject poverty because they would always have an opportunity someday, every 50 years, to get their land back. But suppose you run into financial hardship in year three after the last jubilee, and you've had to sell your land to somebody. Well, what could happen is you could have a kinsman redeemer come in, someone in your family, one of your relatives, they could come and they could buy the land on your behalf, and it would go back into your name. They were entitled to do that as a kinsman redeemer. Now, the same thing was true uh, when you became a servant or a slave to somebody. So they didn't have slavery like we generally think of slavery, where you kidnap somebody and make them be your slave, but they would have kind of an indentured servitude thing where maybe you'd get into debt with someone and you would say, you know what, I can't pay my debt, but I will become your servant. I will become your slave. You could have a kinsman, someone in your family, buy you, pay a price to get you out of slavery. Now, the third way that this happened, and this all ties into the land, so try to track with this, is the third kind of redeemer had to do with marriage. Now, remember, the land can only pass through the males who contain the family name, right? And so if, if what would happen is if a woman was widowed, it was expected by the, the well, let me do it this way. This is maybe, try to be a little clearer here. If you have a husband and wife and the husband dies, it was the responsibility of the husband's brother to marry the woman and have kids, and thereby perpetuate his brother's family name. Does that make sense? Because if he didn't, and and the widow died and had no offspring, there was no way to keep that land in the family. That was the only way that you would forfeit the land permanently, was if there was no one to carry it on. And so this could happen. And Deuteronomy 25 talks about this. It usually was was the case that it was a brother would do this. Now, over time, that expanded where um, someone else in the family, a cousin or some other relative would come in and would marry a widow. So so listen, what you have in the story of Ruth is you have Naomi, Elimelech's widow, and you've got Ruth. There's no one to carry the family name. And there's no hope. So not only are they in this dire place where there's no one to provide for them immediately, but their hope of generation after generation being able to have the land that is theirs is gone unless somebody, a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, comes and marries Ruth. So that's why when Ruth comes back to Naomi and and she says, where were you today? And she says, I was in a field with some guy named Boaz. And she goes, he's a redeemer. That's why this is such a big deal. Is Naomi is going, okay, this is our chance, not just to be provided for now, but for our family to continue. And for our property to continue. So this is, a, this is a really big concept that you have to understand. And this idea comes up over and over and over through the rest of this uh, book. So let's get into the story. And again, this is just kind of a strange story. Here's how it begins. Begins with Naomi, the mother-in-law, hatching a plan. She has a great idea, or so she thinks. This is probably about six or seven weeks since the last episode ended in chapter 2. Uh, the beginning of the barley harvest and Boaz and Ruth had met each other and gazed into each other's eyes and had this great meal. But there's no record that any other conversation had happened or that this was going anywhere. Or, and so you know Ruth is like, or Naomi's going, 
we got to make this happen. we got to hook these kids up. we got to arrange this. we got to figure this out. See, she had seen that God and his providence seemed to be bringing Boaz and Ruth together, and yet she wasn't willing to just trust God's process. So she comes up with a plan, and, and she couches it in these very loving words. But I, I, I'll just tell you, throughout this whole book, I don't trust Naomi. I don't think Naomi's like a hero of any of these stories. I think she's... I think she's doing a lot of what her and her husband did when they, instead of trusting God's provision, they took a shortcut and went to Moab and abandoned God. I think that's a lot of what she does. And so she begins and she says, verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? I mean, Ruth, I'm looking out for you. But here's her plan. Her plan is basically this. Here's what I want you to do, Ruth. Take a shower. I've been working in the fields for quite a while and... You don't look or smell very good. And I would like you to um, put on some perfume. Talks about, uh, you know, get, get anointed, anoint yourself, verse 3. Put on your Moabite midnight. <laughs> Take a bath. Uh, put on your best clothes. You know, a poor person would maybe have two sets of clothes if they were fortunate. So put on your best ones. And I want you to go to him at... at at night, under the cover of darkness, when no one's really around, and I want you to do it in the middle of the, the harvest party. And you've got to understand, one of the other background things going on here is this is all taking place uh, at the culmination of the harvest. So they had had 10 years of drought and famine, and now it's harvest time. And if you ever grew up in a farm or in a farming community, you know what a big deal harvest is. And, and so that was the same thing here. They would eat, they would drink, they would party, they would rejoice, they would delight. It was this great, uh, it was this great moment. And so she says, I want you to go down to the threshing floor... Wearing your perfume, get all dolled up, and wait for Boaz until after he's eaten and drank, he's relaxed, he's feeling good. Doesn't indicate that he's drunk, but he's, you know, he's had a few drinks, he's feeling good. And here's what I want you to do wait till he goes to sleep, and then uncover his feet and lay there with him. He'll tell you the rest to do. How many of you think that, like, that's a good plan? <laughs> if you really care about, like, the purity and the honor and the... Right, I mean, my, my guess is most of you that are going to send daughters off to college are not going to suggest that as the way to go about meeting a guy. But that's what's going on. This is a, again, this is a weird story. Part of what makes it so weird is that we're not exactly sure what's meant by the phrase, uncover his feet. That same Hebrew phrase is used a number of places in the Bible. Sometimes it refers to the idea of just uncovering somebody's feet. Other times it refers to uncovering their whole legs, which generally meant that everything would be exposed. In other places it, it kind of has the idea of spreading the feet. So it's a very, like, people don't know exactly what this means. But you get the idea here. From Naomi, and again, remember the the biblical idea of the connection between sex and marriage. You get the idea that Naomi is saying, get dolled up, get pretty. He'll know what to do. And then he'll have to marry you. Because after you guys hook up, you're in. That seems to be Naomi's plan. One of the reasons I think that that is, in fact, her plan is because when Ruth returns um, in verse 16, 
it says that uh, Naomi's question to her was, how did you fare? Which literally in the Hebrew means, whose are you? Like, did, did you go through with it? Are you now, like, you're connected? You're, you're gonna, he's got to marry you? I mean, this is a bad plan. She's not looking out for uh, Ruth's safety. She's not looking out for Ruth's purity. This is, a, this is a bad plan. Right idea that God might want Boaz and Ruth to be together. Bad way to go about it. And so it says in uh, verse 6 that Ruth did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. So she gets dolled up. She's smelling good, looking good. And she goes and she waits and she uncovers his feet and lays at his feet. And somewhere around midnight, it sounds like Boaz, you know, maybe his feet are cold or I don't know what, he stirs. And, and he's, he notices that someone's laying at his feet. Now remember, this is outside. There, this is, there's no electricity, right? He didn't have a cell phone on his bed table. He could like shine the light and go, who is that? Right? So he's like, who are you? And she says, Ruth. And instantly he, he goes, Wow. And what she says, actually, she says it's Ruth. And then here's what she says. Um, Look at verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What is Ruth saying there? Spread your wings over me. The same word, the same phrase is used to describe God's role of covering his people, providing protection and warmth and provision for his people. Here's what she's saying. Boaz, will you marry me? That's what it is. You are a redeemer. You can do this. She, that's incredible courage. I mean, that would be boldness and courage in our day, but especially in this day. She's incredibly courageous. And Boaz responds and just clearly has respect and affection for her. He says, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm so amazed that you, you could have gone after all these, you know, younger guys and you picked me and what an honor. And, but, but here's the problem, Ruth. See, the way this kinsman redeemer thing works is the people that are closest of kin have the first shot at it. And there's someone closer to you than me. And so even there, even though it seems like Boaz and Ruth really do care for each other, and there's clearly a a respect, Boaz says about her in verse 11 that she's a worthy woman. That's the same phrase translated in Proverbs 31, an excellent wife. An excellent wife, who can find, it says. And he's found her, here's a worthy woman. He'd love to be her redeemer. But even then, he's still going to honor the details of God's word. Even then, he says, you know what? Not only am I not going to make a move on you right now, but we need to give the other, this other guy a, a chance to redeem you first because that's the right thing to do. It's incredible. It's incredible character under pressure. Listen. How many men have woken up in the middle of the night with a nice-smelling woman laying there at, her feet, at his feet would like not do something only a man of character because it's who you are in your private under pressure moments that's who you really are and boaz is a man of character and then he gives her all this grain she goes back to naomi he makes sure in verse 17 he he tells or he tells ruth you must not go back to naomi empty-handed you got to take care of her. And remember, that's been Naomi's worry the whole time, right? Is I, I went away full and now I'm empty. And he says, no, 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 you're going to be taken care of. And even though Naomi's character is bad, she's still going to be provided for under God's grace. 
So that's the story. Naomi assures Ruth at the end, he'll take care of this today. He's a man of character. That's a weird story, isn't it? I mean, that's just strange. What exactly is going on and how did that work? And man, it's just, it's a little strange. But, but here's, I think, what we can learn from it is who you are when the pressure's on is who you are. So let's look at each of these characters and see, okay, who were they? First, Naomi. Who's Naomi under pressure? There's pressure to be sure. Who's going to take care of her? Who's going to provide for her? Who's going to make sure the family name continues? How is this going to work? And she sees what maybe God wants, but she's got to shortcut it. So she compromises and she's deceitful. She's always looking for that shortcut. Listen, we do the exact same thing in different ways, but we do the same thing. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you know needs to make a change in their life. You've talked to them about it, but not much is happening. And so instead of just praying and trusting the Lord and saying, God, you can do more than I would ever do, you start to manipulate. You start to nag and poke and pick. It's great that you want this change to happen. That's fine. But are you going to take a shortcut to it or are you going to trust God in his process? Here's another example that we're going through right now is we, we'd love to buy a van for our family. We'd like to get a van. We've got two kids now. We'd like to have more at some point in the future. And vans just open up some things, right? I mean, what dad doesn't want a minivan, right? So we've decided, yeah, we, we'd like to get a van. Nothing wrong with getting a van, right? That's not sinful. That's not wrong. That's not, I mean, that, that could totally be something God wants for us. But here's what we've seen. If we get the van now, if we go, man, we oh, we got to have it now, and we sort of talk ourselves all the reasons why we need it, what it's going to mean is that we're going to have to compromise on some of the other commitments we've made, like commitments to fulfill our beyond commitment, for example, commitments to um, not take on extra debt that we don't really need or want, commitments in general to just push back on the thing in us that goes, we got to have it now, we got to have it now. And so it's totally fine to want a van, but it would be wrong for us to just rush into it. And we could make it happen and we could justify it. But, but, but in that case, we don't want, we don't want to do that. And, and we go through, you go through those examples, don't you? You know, the time where you go, this is totally a fine thing to get. It's just the, the, the issue is not what, it's when, right? So she doesn't trust the Lord under pressure. What about Ruth? What do we see from Ruth? Well, Ruth is obedient and Ruth is honorable and Ruth is for sure courageous, though she is a bit naive, isn't she? And we should cut her some slack. I mean, she's a, she's a baby Christian, as we might say. She's just started following the Lord. She doesn't understand Leverite, marriage, and kinsman redeemer. and uh, I mean, she doesn't get all that. And so Naomi, who seems to be caring for her, says, Hey, I've got a plan for you. And she does it. She goes through with it. And yet you see her character rises up. And that she doesn't just throw herself at Boaz in some sort of suggestive or impure way, but she gives him an opportunity to respond and, and courageously proposes. I mean, that is incredible courage. Now, remember, she was in a bad spot. I mean, she was in a tough place. I mean, uh, one of the authors I was reading this week said, imagine if Ruth had had to try to write a personal ad for herself. Right? I mean, this, they, there's no e-harmony here, right? But imagine this. How, how, how good does this sound? Single Moabite woman, widowed, childless, with mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessmen with view to marriage, must love mother-in-law. I mean, she's, she's in trouble. And yet in the midst of that pressure, 
She's courageous. She's honorable. She's a worthy woman. That's what it said in verse 11. Here's another thing that's fascinating about this. Nowhere in the whole book of Ruth does it ever mention how Ruth looks. We're never told that she was a person of beauty. We're never told she had a great figure. Doesn't say anything about that. It only talks about her character. Isn't that interesting? Now it seems, I mean, Boaz says, man, all these other younger guys would have totally taken you. It seems like, well, maybe she is pretty, but it's her character that stands out. It's not what is on the outside, it's what on the inside that matters, right? Which is what you usually just say to ugly people. Wasn't that liar, liar or something? My teacher says that beauty is on the inside. Yeah, that's what we say to ugly people. But, but we all know, even though we resist that, even though we get all caught up in the vanity and the beauty and the this and that, we all know that's true, don't we? And someday your beauty will fade. We're all getting older and saggier and fatter and wrinklier and grayer. I mean, it's right? And, and what matters is, is who you are, what your character is. And her character stands out. But the person that stands out by far the most is Boaz. Boaz here, and as we'll see this week and next week, Boaz begins to be a picture of Jesus, the Redeemer, the true, the ultimate Redeemer. And Boaz's character is, is just astounding. I mean, even when he's woken up, he responds with poise. Isn't that incredible? I mean, like when I wake up from a nap, like if, if Molly has to wake me up, I'm like, what? Right? I mean, I'm like barely a Christian at all, like when that happened. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, doesn't know what's going on. And, and his response is, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You're just like, I hate that guy. (laughs) Wakes up with character, wakes up with poise. He commends her honor. He honors God's word and the process of it. Even though it would have been, I mean, the easiest thing to do would have been to sleep with her. Another thing he could have done, which would have been great, would be to go, yeah, I, I love you. You love me. Clearly God wants this to happen. God wouldn't have brought us together unless he wanted it to happen. Oh, but wait a second. The Bible talks about this. And so instead of just going on his feelings and going on his, what he thinks, he goes, what's the Bible say? And he honors that. That's a man of integrity. And listen, there's nobody around. There's no one to see this. He could have totally done either of those things. And instead, when the pressure's on and the moment is private, his character rises to the surface. And then he provides for her generously. He gives, us, gives her all this extra barley to take home. I mean, this is clearly a picture of Jesus. And it may seem to you like a stretch. Well, how are you connecting this to Jesus? But listen, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, has this moment where he's walking with some disciples on what's called the Emmaus Road. And it says there that Jesus went through the Old Testament the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he explained from Scripture everything that had to do with himself. Here's what that means. That means every passage of Scripture, every major theme, every major storyline finds its answer and resolution in Jesus. So we are not just to look at a passage like this and go, be more like Boaz. Wasn't Boaz great? But we're to look at it and say, how does this point 
to Jesus. We'll see this even more next week. But Boaz is, in fact, a redeemer of Ruth. He is going to spread his wings over her and take care of her. And if he'll do that for her, how much more has Jesus done that for us? Jesus is the true and better Boaz. Boaz is a redeemer, but he points to the ultimate redeemer. Think about how Jesus responds under pressure. Jesus responds when he's alone before the Father in the garden. He's going, oh, I don't know if I want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. How's he respond to the pressure of hanging on a cross and people mocking him and scorning him and spitting on him? What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus is a redeemer. There's a great place where Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have longed to have brought you under my wings like a mother hen. Jesus is the redeemer that we need. And here's why this is so important. Boaz's character, what makes it so interesting and so commendable is that it's so upside down from how everyone would normally respond, right? This is, this is not normal. This is strange. This is a, a godly thing. When we say godly, that means it's godlike. This is, this is different. And Jesus, all throughout his ministry, is saying that, you know, listen, the values of this world, we've got to turn these upside down. The way, the way that you think about things where whoever's first is first. No, no, no. The first shall be last. And if you want to save your life, lose it. And whoever gives himself away will actually be fulfilled. There's a whole reversal of values. And the only way to respond when the private moment comes and the pressure is on is if your values have been reversed. And listen, the only thing that reverses your values is seeing Jesus as he actually is, the perfect redeemer, crucified for you, dying in your place, becoming weak, the God of the universe becoming weak, so that you would know, even in your weakness, you have his strength. And as you see Jesus as your redeemer, as you experience him wrapping himself around you, it changes your whole perspective, changes your values. When the pressure's on, you can respond with faithful obedience. Well, next week, we're going to finish this story. We're going to see in chapter 4 how Boaz wisely um, fulfills his commitment to redeem Ruth and the implication that it has uh, even as we look ahead all the way to Jesus. So um, join us next week in the new building as we continue that story Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us. And